If you would, find Mark chapter 10 in your Bible. Mark 10. And if you'd like to put a marker there, you can also look for Deuteronomy 24. We're going to look at a few verses there in a few minutes. This morning is a demonstration of our commitment as a church to going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Bible. Because honestly, if that wasn't the game plan, I would probably just skip over this next one. And as I was studying it this week, it occurred to me I really should have just assigned it to Phil Jr. when he was preaching last week. That, that would have been much easier on me. Today we're going to study together what Jesus tells us about divorce and remarriage. I would imagine that almost everyone here, if not everyone here, has been affected by divorce. Maybe you personally have been divorced. Maybe a parent, maybe a sibling, certainly someone in your extended family, neighbor, you know somebody who's gone through a divorce or is going through a divorce. And regardless of who it is, if it's somebody you love, it's painful. It's difficult. At the outset this morning, I would like to make sure that everybody here understands that if you're divorced, we are not down on you. We are not condemning you. We are not thinking less of you. But the most important thing I can do for you and anybody else here who hasn't been divorced is tell you what Jesus says about it. Because honestly, what I think matters only to the extent that I'm telling you what Jesus said and what the Bible says in other parts of the book. So that's what I'm going to do this morning is with the help of the Holy Spirit, share with you what Jesus taught about divorce and remarriage. Back when I preached the Revelation, I made a point to tell you where I was coming from. In other words, what I believe about end times events and the order of things. So I gave you that up front to, to know what context I'm coming from. And in that same way, I'd like to begin today by telling you what I personally believe about divorce and remarriage. Just get that on the table, kind of where we're going, lest you be wondering all the way through. I didn't just throw down these comments on paper or on a computer screen. This is something that I worked on. The first time I really had to stop and think about it was in preparation for my ordination nine or ten years ago. And I figured, all right, somebody's going to ask me about this. I need to know. Also, as a pastor, if I'm going to perform or participate in weddings, I need to know whom am I willing to marry. That's an important thing to consider. If I'm going to counsel, I need to know what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. So I, I studied it then. I studied it even more when we got to the parallel passages in Matthew years ago. And then I've spent time wrestling with some of these truths even this week and researching it some more. So this is what I believe about divorce and remarriage. First off, marriage is a one flesh relationship. You don't have to write these down. And this isn't inspired, but it's based on the inspired word of God. Marriage is a one flesh relationship. God intends for marriage to last a lifetime. Next, God hates divorce. That's from Malachi 2.16. Those are kind of basic. I think most of us would agree on those things. Here's my application of that. The Bible makes specific limited allowances for divorce. And they are adultery and desertion by an unsaved spouse. So you're married, your spouse is not married, and your spouse wants a divorce. That's what's described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. In connection with that, I further believe that the Bible makes specific limited allowances for remarriage after divorce. And they're the same allowances. They're the same exceptions. They are adultery and desertion by an unsaved spouse. I wanted to give you those general ideas of what I believe so that you know where I'm coming from as I read, study, present this passage in Mark. I'm not going to try to cover every possibility this morning. You probably have specific questions. Well, so-and-so, well, what about that? And what about whether I was saved or unsaved? There's lots of things we could talk about, but all I intend to present to you today is what the Bible says and what I believe it means, how it applies to our lives. Um, 
I'll also say here at the outset that there are good men and women, godly people, love God, love his word, believe it's inspired, who come to different conclusions, particularly about remarriage. And that's fine. I would not separate from them. If you have a little bit different view on divorce and remarriage from what I just told you, that's fine. That doesn't determine whether we're going to heaven or hell. But I do want to be committed to the word, and that's how I understand the scriptures. As I've studied it out, I encourage you to study it out. Because anything I tell you today or any other Sunday, your job is to search the scriptures and make sure that I've got it right, that what I'm saying is true, that what I'm saying is accurate and biblical. So with all of that as a preface, hopefully you have Mark 10 where you can see it. Would you stand with me and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the people gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, that it is alive and powerful and it speaks to us where we are. And Father, that is exactly what I'm asking for this morning. That your word would speak to me. That it would speak to each person here and anyone joining us online. Lord, these are the words of life. There's no other place for us to turn. But this topic is painful for many. And so I pray that we would have ears to hear and softened hearts, not hard-hearted hearts. Lord, I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to anoint me and empower me to teach your word accurately this morning. Give us understanding. It is your Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. So we ask for his help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have one main point. As simply as I can state it, God intends for marriage to last. God intends for marriage to last. You say, how long? For life. Talk more about that as we get into this. But he intends for marriage to last. I'm going to give you an outline of the passage. You can write it down if you want to. I don't think there's anything profound here, but I want you to understand that there's a back and forth. There are questions and answers. So verse 1 of our section for today gives us the setting. Where did this conversation take place geographically? Then the Pharisees brought a question to Jesus. That's verse 2. Jesus asked them a question. That's verse 3. The Pharisees give their answer to Jesus' question. That's verse 4. And then Jesus gives an extended answer in response to what the Pharisees said. Then we have those last three verses. Verse 10, the disciples ask further questions in the house, and Jesus gives his answers to those in verses 11 and 12. So I point that out to you just to help you understand it's a conversation. It's a continuing conversation, and with a lot of questions and answers along the way. 
Let's go back to verse 1 where it says, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. They're on the other side of the Jordan. Well, okay, well, there's one side of the Jordan, there's the other side of the Jordan. Which one is it? It's the eastern side of the Jordan. Why? Because Jesus left Galilee. Remember, he's been in Capernaum. He has finished his Galilean ministry. He is headed south. Where's he going ultimately? We know he's going to Jerusalem. And Mark, as he often does, kind of shortens and shrinks what's going on here. If you combine this with the other Gospels, people who've harmonized that believe that this section took about six months. And Jesus was ministering in Judea, that's in and around Jerusalem, and then across the Jordan in the area where he is in our setting right here in Perea. So it's about a six-month period, but Mark seems to focus on what happened toward the end of it. Where is Jesus going? He is going to Jerusalem by what we call Passion Week, by the time of the Passover. Why? To be crucified, to die. That's where this is all headed. But we don't know that yet, except that we've read the rest of the story. But that's where he is. He is approximately the same area where he was baptized. This is where his public ministry began, when he came to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, that area called Bethabara. That's from other Gospels. That's where we know he was. And it says, as he was accustomed, he taught them again. So the crowd gathered again, and it's in the Greek both times, again, again. The crowd gathered again, he taught them again. That's what he was accustomed to do. He didn't get tired of teaching people. Aren't you glad that Jesus does not get tired of teaching us? His word is alive and powerful, and he teaches us over and over, repeatedly as we need it. Verse 2 tells us that the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice the words, testing him. The Pharisees came and asked him, and they were testing him. What were they trying to do? They were trying to do what they did just about every time. They were coming to try to discredit Jesus' ministry, to catch him in something that he said so that they could say, all right, see, he's wrong. He disagrees with Moses. He disagrees with the law. He disagrees with the Roman government. They were trying to catch him in his words. That was the purpose of their question. Why am I saying that? It wasn't a real question. It wasn't a sincere question. They were trying to trap him. And this is why verse 1 is important. They were trying to trap him, to divide him between the two prevailing positions of the day. Mark gives us a really succinct question here. If you compare this to Matthew, the question they asked was quoted there as, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Just any old reason at all. Are there just a narrow list of reasons, or can it be any old reason. That's their question. Because they're trying to get him to come down on one side or the other. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But where are they? They're in Perea. Who is in charge of Perea and Judea? They rhyme. Is that nice? The person in charge of that area is a man by the name of Herod Antipas. And if you've been in our study of Mark, you may remember. Herod Antipas had divorced his wife in order to marry Remember, it was his step-niece, step-great-niece, and all sorts of craziness in that family tree. So his relative-in-law, he married that person, and she had to divorce her husband in order for that to happen. And John the Baptist had come out and said, it is not lawful for you to have her. And how'd that go for John the Baptist? Ultimately, he lost his head over it. He was executed. He got in big trouble and was eventually killed because he spoke out against divorce and remarriage. And that may be what they were after. Because if Jesus spoke out against divorce and remarriage, then maybe Herod will lock him up and then we won't have to deal with him anymore. That may be what they were thinking. When they say, is it lawful? Here are the two schools of thought of that day. And if you care, there was one rabbi, Hillel, and another one, Shammai, two different schools and the successing, succeeding rabbis in each school. One said that you can divorce for practically any reason. And by any reason, here are the ones that were spelled out in writing. A woman could be divorced for spoiling her husband's dinner, 
for going outside the house with her head uncovered, for being quarrelsome, for being childless, not able to have children, or even if the husband found some other woman more attractive than his wife. In other words, any old reason you can divorce your wife. Okay? That was one side of the debate, and that happened to be Hillel. Shammai took a much more narrow approach and said that only if there's a case of adultery, there's immorality going on, then you can divorce your wife. So a much more narrow approach. You say, well, that's kind of what Jesus said. Sort of. The difference is that Shammai and those who followed him would say not only can you divorce your wife if she commits adultery, you must if you're going to do the honorable thing. That's different from what Jesus says. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Now, as you read the scriptures, we've pointed this out before, often when somebody came to Jesus with a question, he would respond with a question. And that's what he does here. But I like this question because it's a good, good question. It was to point them back to something. What? What does it say? What do the scriptures say? What did Moses command? Very significant word choice that Jesus is making here. And he's pointing them back to the scripture. That's what we should be concerned about. He's pointing them to the words of Scripture rather than any rabbi's interpretation of it. So I'll stop here and say that when it comes to a moral issue, it really doesn't matter what I think or what you think. The question is, what did God say about it? If God specifically addressed it, and not everything in the world is addressed in the Scripture, but if God said something specific about it, we need to find that in the Scripture, we need to find out what it says, we need to find out what it means, and we need to apply it to our lives. Verse 4 is their response. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, what did Jesus ask? Let's look at the words here. What did Moses command you? And how did they answer? Did they say, Moses commanded us to da-da-da-da-da? Is that what they said? No, because they couldn't. Moses didn't command anybody to get divorced. So they come back with a truthful statement. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. This went against the teaching of both schools of thought. In the case of Rabbi Hillel, somebody said he taught that it was the righteous duty of a man to divorce his wife if she displeased him. What did Moses command? And this is where we're going to get into Deuteronomy 24. What Moses commanded was that there be a certificate of divorce, that he give her something in writing to show a transaction. We would call it today a legal transaction, that he is divorcing her. So what is this certificate of divorce? One of my sources said that this document required the husband to give the reason for the divorce and therefore protect his wife's reputation if she were, in fact, innocent of wrongdoing. It also served as the formal release for her from the marriage and then affirmed her right to remarry, assuming that she was not guilty of immorality. So this certificate of divorce, let's read about it because I thought about just summarizing these passages in other places, and I thought, well, that's silly. I'm telling you all. Jesus said, go back to it. So let's look at it, please, together. This is a little bit of a long paragraph, but this is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Hopefully you haven't. If not, look on the screen behind me. There we have, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And I underline that because that's the key to this. He has found some uncleanness in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband 
who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this is Deuteronomy 24. This is the proof text of that day that you can divorce your wife. And why do you keep talking about the man? Because in that culture, women couldn't divorce the husband. I'll come back to that at the very end today. But the reason it's all addressed to the man is that in that culture, in that context, only men had the right to divorce their wives. A summary I found of this that I thought explained it well is that if the events of verses 1 through 3 take place, in other words, a woman is divorced from her first husband and marries a second one who also divorces her or dies, then the restriction of verse 4 applies. In other words, her first husband cannot remarry her. That's all Deuteronomy 24 is saying. That if a husband divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce and she can't go back to that first husband. That's what this passage says. From that, they got... I could divorce my wife for anything. That's, that's what they focused on. They weren't focused on the part of, if this happens, then this other thing can't happen. It was really regulating remarriage. So like I said, the, the phrase, the wording that is at the crux of this matter is up there in verse 1 where it says, some uncleanness, which is literally a thing of nakedness or a thing of shame. So what did that mean? And I wish I could tell you, because we really don't know what that meant at that time. Using logic, and this is a logical argument, this is not from other places in Scripture, I'm inclined to think it wasn't adultery. Because in that time and place, what happened to people who committed adultery? They were stoned. It was a capital offense. So if this is allowing for divorce, then it wouldn't be for adultery, probably, and yet we get to our passage, the parallel to our passage today. If you read Matthew, Jesus is saying you can't divorce for anything other than adultery. It seems that Jesus is applying Deuteronomy 24 that either it's a future allowance that Moses made in the future, like the time of Jesus, where stoning was very rare. It was very difficult for the Jews to get the Romans to allow them to execute anybody based on their own law that wasn't a Roman law. Are you following with me? I don't know whether I'm saying this very well. So some uncleanness was the exception that Moses allowed in Deuteronomy 24 in a time and place where adultery was a capital offense. In his response, Jesus did a couple things. First, he explained why God, through Moses, allowed for divorce. Look at verse 5. I'm back in Mark chapter 10 now. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this precept. What's he saying? Because of your sin, Moses allowed this. He didn't command it. He allowed for it. What is hardness of heart? We've come across that in Mark recently. We've come across that, our, our men in the Hebrews study recently. Hard-heartedness is stubbornness. It's being stiff-necked. It is being rebellious. It is being disobedient, and ultimately it is being unbelieving in God and what he has said. We need to understand that it was something he permitted, and even the Pharisees admitted that. Moses permitted this situation to happen this way. Because God was not saying, I approve of divorce. Warren Wiersbe said, rather, he was seeking to restrain divorce and make it more difficult for men to dismiss their wives. He put sufficient regulations around divorce so that the wives would not become victims of their husband's whims. In the Roman culture around them, there were men who would divorce their wives in the morning and go have sexual relations with another woman and then come home and basically remarry their wife. It was a bizarre, sick situation. I'm not saying that was all the time, but it, was, it happened. That was the secular, unsaved society around them, as we would see it. In Jewish society, it was still very common. It was an expectation in the Jewish culture that if you were an adult, 
you were married. And if this wife didn't please you, then you're going to divorce and you're going to marry somebody else. And if that wife burns the food, then you're going to divorce her and you're going to move on to somebody else and move on to somebody else because you were always going to be married. So what we see in Deuteronomy 24 and even what Jesus is saying in this passage in Mark actually protects women. That's a good thing. It, it may not sound that way to you, but in that culture, a woman had very few rights at all, certainly in the Jewish culture. And by getting a certificate of divorce that says, this marriage is over, I can remarry, it was actually protecting women. One of my study Bibles put it this way, divorce was instituted to protect the injured party in a bad situation. Then Jesus sidestepped the debate of the day. He wasn't going to take sides with Hillel or Shammai or anybody else. He got to the heart of the matter instead. Rather than teach everything he could about divorce and remarriage, he went to a different topic. He went to marriage. What is God in God's intent for marriage? So what did they want to talk about? Why can we get divorced? What did Jesus want to tell them about? And he did. Why did God establish marriage? He changes the conversation to dwell on what God intended. We're in verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning of creation, it interests me, comparing this to our modern society, Jesus didn't say, well, Moses wrote that a long time ago. It doesn't really apply to today. It was a different time and place, a different culture. We really didn't, don't need to focus on what Moses said. No, what did Jesus do? He went back even further. He said, let's not talk about what Moses told you in Deuteronomy. Let's talk about what Moses wrote that God told him in Genesis 1 and 2. That's where he goes, to the beginning. What does it say there? Well, he's going to quote Genesis 1.27. This is a side note. I don't want to get distracted on it, but what this tells me is that Jesus believes in creation. In case you didn't already know that, Jesus was a creationist, still is. He, what does he say? He quotes Genesis 1.27 when he says, God made them male and female. How many humans at the beginning did God create? Two. Very good. And he created one male, he created one female. What is implied in that is that marriage is between one male and one female. He didn't create a bunch of males and a bunch of females and they could just kind of get together and they could even switch partners when they wanted to. That's not how God designed it. God designed one male and one female. Let's look at the verse in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What are some things that tells me? That God created, that God created two genders. God created male or female. And it's not that one is better and one is worse, or one is, you could, you pick your adjectives. Both, this tells me, both male and female are created in the image of God. Now, do we know exactly what God looks like? No, but we know that male and female together reflect his glory, reflect his image. Are you with me? Both male and female, and those are the only two choices, are made in the image of God. Next, he described marriage by quoting, it's in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 24. And that verse has three key phrases for us. This is in our passage, verse 7. I'll read that first, and then I'll read the Genesis passage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Paralleling Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why do you keep pointing it? I want you to see it both places. Jesus is accurately quoting. He would have been quoting probably the Septuagint, but he's quoting 
the, the Old Testament, and he's quoting it accurately. He's the author of it. So what's the first idea here? To leave father and mother. And that word leave is actually a very strong word. It means to leave behind, to depart from, or to forsake. There seems to be some misunderstanding about that in our modern era. In any time, in any time and place, if a new unit, a new husband and wife, do not successfully separate from both sets of parents, there are going to be problems. Problems with relationships, perhaps problems with finances. It's a new unit. God sees that as a new separate family, and so there needs to be space. You say, well, we can't afford to live anywhere else. We need to live with my parents. Okay, but there still needs to be separation. It's not the same as when you're living at home under your parents' authority or she's living at home under her parents' authority. There needs to be separation of some kind. Distance is good. The best distance we ever lived was 100 miles from both sets of parents, and it was close enough that we could go for a a birthday celebration or something and come right back. It was ideal. Every situation is different, but there has to be a mental shift that I am no longer... Let me say it this way. My first allegiance is no longer to my parents. I'm supposed to honor them for my entire life, but I'm not supposed to obey them for my entire life. Children are supposed to obey their parents. Everyone is supposed to honor father and mother that your life will be long. So I am still going to honor them, but my first commitment, when I say I do, once I'm married, my first commitment is to my wife. And it needs to be that way. And her first commitment needs to be to me, not to her parents. Because that's the way God designed it. Leave father and mother. Somebody put it this way. The old ties are broken and a new bond is forged. Because that's what we read next. Be joined to his wife. Become one flesh. That's the second and third phrase together. But this word, to be joined, if you have a King James with you, it has that word cleave in verse 7. It means literally to glue, to cement. God intends for that bond that's formed by marriage to be strong. And he intends that bond to be permanent. How many of you ever super glued something together? Most of you. How many of you ever glued your fingers together in that process? Okay. Either you'll glue your fingers or you'll get paper glued or you'll glue... Somehow the glue gets on something else and you mean you glue something you don't mean to. Well, what happens after that? Something's going to get messed up. This happened not that long ago. We had something that was, it wasn't plaster, but it was that kind of material, something ceramic. And I didn't glue the pieces back in the right order. And that was stuck. I think we ended up throwing it away because I couldn't get the piece back in where it needed to go. Once that bond forms, you cannot separate it. Or if you try, what's going to happen? It's going to make a mess. It's going to rip something apart. It's going to damage someone or something. That's what God's saying. That he needs to go be joined to his wife, glued together, becoming one flesh. And I know there's a spiritual component to this. That's not my emphasis today. There is a spiritual component to this. We read about it in Ephesians 5. That husband and wife are a picture of Christ and his church. Absolutely true. Biblically accurate. Spiritual union. That's not the foremost relationship we're talking about that. Marriage is first and foremost a physical union. It is a physical union. He describes it as one flesh rather than one spirit. And I have a quote here from Warren Wearsby for you. Since marriage is a physical union, only a physical cause can break it. Well, what do you mean by that? Either death, we read about that in Romans 7, or fornication. And we read that in a couple of Matthew passages. If it's a physical union, then it would have to be broken physically. It has to be broken ultimately by God. I think you understand what I'm saying. But only physical cause can break that union If you have a modern translation, then you probably have quotation marks around what Jesus has quoted in Genesis 1, verse 27, and and the next chapter, Genesis 2, 24. Do you see that in your copy of the scriptures? Quotation, quotation, 
This last statement is not a quotation where Jesus says, therefore. I'm in verse uh, 9 now. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is Jesus' commentary. This is Jesus' summary on what he's just quoted from Genesis. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, marriage is not just an agreement between a boy and a girl. We're going to get married. We love each other. I hope you do. That's a good start. But it's not just, we're going to the chapel and we're going to get married. It's not just something that, oh, I have a marriage license. The, the state says that I can be married. It's not that. Ultimately, marriage is something that God does in uniting two people together. And that's how he sees them. Once you get married, God sees you as one. The two become one. They are joined. They are one flesh. So he says what God has joined together. It's not just a human agreement. It's not just a state-sanctioned license procedure. It's that they're no longer two. They're one. Here, in, in my New King James, I have a second time of the appearance of the word joined in my English. But this is a different word for joined. This is yoked together. It's the picture of two animals being side by side in a yoke. They're going to pull together. They're going to ideally go in the same direction together. And if they don't, it's going to cause problems. It's not going to work well. What's going on here? God established marriage. It was his idea. And because he designed it, he gets to make the rules. And what does he say about it? That he created male and female, that a man leaves father and mother, is joined to his wife, they become one flesh. That's what the Bible says about it. So God's definition of marriage is one man and one woman joined by him. Now somebody help me out. One plus one equals? Good, you are ahead of me. One plus one equals one in the context of marriage. Young people, if you have a math test next week, don't put one plus one equals one. But when we're talking about marriage, we have one male, one female combined, joined by God to be one unit. That's what's going on. The second part of Jesus' statement is, let not man separate. Don't let man separate. If God is the one putting them together, then man doesn't get to pull them apart. Found another illustration of an amputation. We talked about that last time we were in Mark, didn't we? An amputation isn't something you sign up for. This is not an elective surgery. When would you have an amputation? In a very dire situation. It has to be bad enough that that's the only logical solution. In some ways, divorce is like that. That there needs to be a diagnosis worthy of such a radical procedure. So to sum up what Jesus has been saying to the crowd and to the Pharisees about marriage, the Bible Knowledge Commentary has this definition, and I think it's very good. It has some big words, and I'll explain them, but it's short and sweet. Marriage is to be a monogamous, heterosexual, permanent, one-flesh relationship. Now, what do those words mean? Monogamous. One-to-one. You're not marrying two or three different wives. She's not marrying multiple husbands. Just one and one. One male, one female. Heterosexual. One male, one female. Permanent. It's going to last for life till one of them dies. And it is a one flesh relationship like we've been talking about. So we have one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's simple enough. You've probably heard that before. I heard it for the first time in junior high from a Bible teacher. One man, one woman, for life. But we're not finished with our passage. We have just a little bit more. Verse 10, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. They're in the house. This is not the first time Jesus has given them some private instruction and clarification. So that's what he's doing. He's waiting until the crowd is gone. Now we can have a private conversation. They have questions for him. And his answer involves whoever divorces his wife. And some of you are thinking, well, I've read the Bible before. Doesn't it say except if this happens, except in terms of adultery or fornication or something? I know it says something, and it does, but not here in Mark. And furthermore, not in Luke. Well, why is that? Did Jesus say there was an exception, or did he not say there's an exception? I believe Matthew is giving us the more complete version. But as we get the perspective, in this case of Mark, or if you read Matthew or Luke or John, you're getting the human perspective led by the Holy Spirit to write down what he saw, what he heard, what he learned. And Mark, we believe, was probably writing to a Roman audience. He was writing to Jew and Gentile. And in the Gentile world, it was just a foregone conclusion that if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you're going to get a divorce. In the Jewish culture, it was a foregone conclusion by then that if your wife, in their case, if your wife is unfaithful to you, you're going to get a divorce. They didn't stone people by the time of Jesus. So it's possible that Matthew and Luke left this out because... It didn't even need to be mentioned in their culture. It was just an expectation. If there's unfaithfulness in the marriage, it's over. It's ended. You're going to get a divorce. That could be what's going on here. He says what is probably more surprising to us, whoever marries another commits adultery. Biblically speaking, to divorce his wife is a sin, but it's not adultery. Where does the adultery come in? When he remarries or she remarries. Why? Because if the divorce is not legitimate in God's eyes, if it's not an exception that the Bible allows for, then that initial couple is still married. God joined them. They're still married in God's eyes. And therefore, if they go and marry another, they're actually creating two problems, adultery and bigamy, meaning having more than one spouse. That's what's going on here. Kent Hughes said something like this. The simple, plain meaning of Jesus' words in verse 9 of Matthew 19, the parallel passage, is that divorce is allowed if your mate is guilty of sexual immorality. If you divorce for any other reason and then remarry, you are the one committing adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. You say, that's harsh. Maybe. It certainly sounds harsh in our ears today. It probably sounded harsh in the disciples' ears. Read Matthew 19. They were shocked by it. Maybe it's better not to marry at all. That's their response. This is also the only place in the Gospels where we have any reference to a woman divorcing her husband. Again, if, if Mark is writing to a Roman audience, as we believe he is, that's why he wrote it, because they were allowed. The women could divorce their husbands in Roman law. So as we finish up here, I want to deal briefly with these exception passages, and they could each be their own sermon very easily, but I'm not going to do that. The exception passages, you can look them up on your own later. Matthew 5, 31, 32. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. That's the parallel exactly to what we're dealing with here. And then, not a parallel to Jesus' words, but Paul's own writing on the topic of divorce and remarriage. The exception is in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. With that in mind, we're going to look at the shortest one. And I'm just going to touch on it briefly. But Matthew 5, 31, 32, you may remember within the Sermon on the Mount, because that's Matthew 5 through 7. Within the Sermon on the Mount, several times Jesus makes a statement like this. You've heard it said this, and he'll quote some aspect of their law and the way they interpreted it in that day. But I say to you, and we, we sometimes call that the intensification of the law. Jesus is taking what they thought of as this is the law, this is righteous, this is what doing right looks like. And he says, no, it's even more than that. And in that context, Jesus makes these statements. This is Matthew 5, 31, 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And they were all saying, yes, heard that. Yes, that's what I believe. 
Verse 32, but I say to you, Jesus says, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Those are strong words that parallel this passage except for the exception phrase there. Except for, and notice, he didn't say adultery. He said except sexual immorality. That's a broad term, folks. That's sexual sin of any kind. In the context of a marriage relationship, we call it adultery. But if there is sexual sin going on, that is biblical grounds for divorce. He says much more about it in our parallel passage to our Mark passage in Matthew 19. And then the passage of Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says that if you're in a relationship that you are saved, your spouse is not, and your spouse wants to divorce you, let it happen. And the language there, I believe, allows for remarriage. You say, you're putting all these questions in my mind, Bob. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand. What I want you to go away with today is the truth of what Jesus has said. And we can talk about this situation or that situation. I'm glad to talk to you about that. In fact, if you want to talk about it in detail, request it as a topic for our next church talk. We can talk about marriage and divorce if that's what you want to talk about. But understand that what Jesus is saying is that divorce and remarriage is a sin. The sin is adultery. Unless the divorce is because of fornication, because of sexual sin. If we reverse that, say it the other way, divorce and remarriage is not a sin if it is due to fornication, adultery. And that's as simply as I can say what Jesus is saying here. There's much more that could be said, but I'm going to stop there and come back to my main point. What's the main point for today? What do I, if all I do is teach you about divorce and remarriage, then I have failed because Jesus wanted to talk about what? Marriage. What is God's intent for marriage? God intends for marriage to last. If you're here this morning, you're either single or you're married. That's everybody in the room. That even includes whoever's watching online. You're either single or you're married. If you're single, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to maintain that gift, manage that gift. You're supposed to honor God with your life. You're supposed to honor God with your body. That's the command of Scripture. If you're married, you're supposed to do the same thing. You're supposed to honor God with your life and honor God with your body, but there's a little bit more to it because we have commands that if you're a husband, you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're supposed to give yourself for her. You're supposed to Love her, honor her, cherish her. If you're a wife, you're supposed to submit to your husband as to the Lord. You're supposed to respect him. Those are difficult commands as well. We need God's grace. We need his help to do them. And if you're here and you're divorced or divorced and remarried, and your divorce wasn't allowed by one of the biblical exceptions, then what I've shown you today is what the mirror of God's word says about your life. It's possible that some of you here today, looking back, you may not have realized it before even, but you committed a sin by divorcing that spouse and remarrying another. You say, what can I do about that? If you're remarried, you can't go back to the previous one. That's in the Bible as well. You do what you do with any other sin, guys. You confess it and forsake it. You accept the free forgiveness that God has offered by the sacrifice of his son on the cross. Whether you've been divorced or not, please don't leave today thinking, oh, divorced people, they're second-class Christians. They're unusable by God for the future. False. False. 
They're sinners like I'm a sinner. And like all of you that I'm looking at are sinners. And when the Bible shows us you've sinned, what do we do about that? We re repent. We say, God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I see now that what I've done is wrong. Please forgive me. I agree with you that that was sin. Please restore my relationship with you. And that's what we should be doing on a regular basis, whatever the sin is. When, when God, the Holy Spirit, God, through his word, shows us our sin, that's how we need to respond. But my greatest concern for you today is not divorce or remarriage or singleness or married state. My greatest concern would be your relationship with God. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you come to him in faith and received the forgiveness of all your sin so that you can have an eternal life with God? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone who would say, Bob, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me about something very specific today and I'm going to do business with God. I'm going to obey him. I'm following what he's told me to do. If that describes you and you'd like me to pray for you, please let me know that by looking up at me or raising your hand, doing something to let me know. Yep, I'm, I'm obeying God and what he's shown me to do today. Is there anyone who would say, Bob, I don't know whether I'm saved. I don't know whether I have eternal life. But I am burdened about that. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Same thing. Either make eye contact with me, look back down, or raise your hand. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that you have paid the penalty for sin on our behalf that we would have eternal life with you. What a blessing. Would you please enable us by your grace to live for you, whether single or married, widowed, divorced, remarried, whatever situation we find ourselves in today, May we honor you. May we obey you. May we follow you as your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.